I think it's sort of uh, assumed, I'm in James 3, and lo and behold I am. Lo and behold is the Christian way of saying things. I heard it from Father, and you may have heard of this too, instead of teaching his two-year-old to say look, he said to say behold. For some reason that bothers people. Behold, Father. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are very grateful for your mercies to us, providing us with your word, your prophets, your apostles, the minds you've given man. We'd ask that you bless this time in all of those things, in your son's name. Amen. Well, James 3, I was telling Jane this morning that he asked if I was staying in James, and I said, yeah, because I can't really stop when it first starts to go after teachers. The first verse, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And you say, yeah, he had better not have stopped before he got to that. Oh, don't worry, I can escape. I, uh, my father used to call it sea lawyering. We were gifted at turning the argument on its head and squirreling our way out of uh, any condemnation, so watch me. But I'm really less concerned. Usually when I go through James 3, it's because I want people to be thinking about the teachers and what effect the teachers have. Usually people say this is a passage about the tongue because it jumps right into that. For we all make many mistakes. And if anyone makes no mistakes in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body also. And a lot of us think when you get to that point, we think that the progress of the soul is work out all your problems and when you finally get to this last hard nut to crack, your mouth. If you control that, you'd be done. I don't run around, write bad checks, go to the bars. I got all that work out. Sometimes I just say something to the wife or say something to my enemies. Once I get that worked out, I'll be a perfect man. Now, that may be in some sort of way true, but I don't think James is going at it from that direction. Because look what he says next. If we put bits into the mouths of horses that they may obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Now hold it. This is approaching it from a different angle. Not saying that your mouth is the last bastion of sin in your life, but somehow it is one of the beginning bastions of sin. One of the first things. We guide their whole bodies. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So the tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. 
The tongue is an unrighteous world among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the cycle of nature, and set on fire by hell. My gosh, this isn't your last line of improvement. Sounds like it's responsible for destroying you. Your mouth. It's, 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 guide, whatever, it's saying something, and it's guiding you. Now, I have this passage out of Matthew 12 here on the side that always was where my mind went when the Lord says to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. That's my mother's favorite. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, men will render account for every careless word they utter. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, it seems to carry some of what James is saying, and some of what we went into this with when it just said, you know, watch your mouth. We'll just say, Sermon on James 3, Pastor said, watch your mouth. But I think we need to watch it a little bit more acutely. Because it seems like it is not just the abundance of my heart, the mouth speaks, but the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, mouth speaking ruins my life. Mouth speaking ruins, if I'm a teacher, ruins many lives. So we've got to watch this in a different way. And it seems, it seems that the Pharisees, Matthew, Jesus is going, how could you guys speak good when you're rotten? You're just awful people. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody who claims Jesus Christ and is on your team theologically? And uh, you start to look at them sideways as they start to express themselves about things even when they're talking about the things of God. And it just resonates with wickedness. The Lord has the same question. How could you be talking two different ways? How can you be speaking of God, speaking of righteousness, and be evil? Let's have you be consistent. Now James goes the same direction with this when he gets to the... Uh, uh, after verse 7, let me read through verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. A restless evil, full of deadly poison. Are you picking up what I've been suggesting is the tongue takes you someplace? It's not just the end result of where you've gotten to. It's some of that where your heart has gotten, your mouth will speak. You want to be considering, some of you young people, 
what kind of destruction you're wielding in your life by how you speak. Because how you speak is doing something. It's a restless evil, a deadly poison. And then he describes the restless evil of the deadly poison. With it, this is like the Pharisees in Matthew 12, with it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brethren, this ought not be so. Now he just told you that no human being could tame the tongue, and then tells you this is not the way it should be. The way you're speaking. Because this restless evil, right? Now what it was called? Full of deadly poison that is leading you to shipwreck your life, your mouth, has got a certain capability that the Pharisees had and that we as Christians have had which is talk about God. And boy, do we think we've accomplished something when we talk about God. Now, I'm really good at that. Um, uh, I get comfortable in my chair in my library and the blind come over seeking. Sometimes the blind don't realize how blind they are. Drew and I had a big fight yesterday about money theory. It wasn't righteousness. He still doesn't think I'm right. But we know who I am. Um, you can talk about... You, you go to an evangelical church and you see somebody who's trying to fit in and they're picking up kind of a ham-handed way Bibleese or Christian talk. You go to a seri more serious church like, you know, All Souls, and you know how to put sincerity into those words. Once you, what's that line? Once you have sincerity faked, you have it made. We know that we can advertise, say a thing. We're going through an election cycle right now. I'm getting enough cardboard in the mail to well, build something, I don't know, a car. Every one of them claiming certain words to resonate, land in my ear a certain way. Every Republican running is a conservative Trump supporter. I don't know if you knew that. But they say that to me. This ought not be so, because we know we're being lied to, right, by politicians. You know why politicians lie to us? They lie to us because they're people. Guess who else is people? Us. We say things when we're talking Jesus, and then when we're PO'd at something, we're talking like hell. It ought not be so. Because when we say out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, we'd like just to think that the wicked man would not be able to resist saying wicked things. But the problem is one of the wickednesses is us saying good things when we want to be heard as good and evil things when we want to be heard that way. It ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, fresh water and brackish? Can a fig tree, my brethren, yield olives or grapevine figs? 
No more can salt water yield fresh. So he's telling you what you are thinking you're doing is not possible. Not just you shouldn't do it, ought not be so, but this is not the way nature works. So let's just imagine for a moment that if I find myself cursing man who's made the image of God and praising God of a Sunday morning, singing an Isaac Watts hymn, all of it's wicked because I'm a wicked man. So what we're being asked to do, just like I said earlier in the book, somewhere, chapter one, I had a bookmark in here. I have a problem, I have one of my ribbons that was my page markers. Got torn, I think a child bit it off or something. It's not long enough to reach the bottom of the, there it is. But he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, back in chapter one. Yeah, man, that's great, what a promise. He's telling us in some way what kind of sophistication the wisdom of God comes at you with. I still meet, after 2,000 years of Christianity, I haven't been alive that whole time, but at 2,000 years of Christianity, people are still confused. Well, he sounded so really, so Christian. How come he's in the Philippines now with the, some young thing he met online? How come that's happening? We don't understand the nature of the heart, the nature of actual wisdom, because we, when we go, this started with, let not many of you become teachers, my brother, it's who you listen to. We have two aspects of this, who we listen to and what we say, because those are the two halves of the communicative experience, right? So we want to be warned about someone taking us for a ride, and we want to be warned about the kind of wickedness we're capable of doing with our tongue, and what the cost of it is. We need to understand, and this is sometimes, you know, because, again, I'm a radical Anabaptist, and I, I'm not a eschatological, it's going to get worse and worse, or it's going to get better and better. It just is. Life is. And it's going to be the same way it was. And people are going to be bad. People think I have a too loser mentality about the church. Well, the, the Lord did too. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Those that find it are few. I take him at his word. But no, we want to win. We want to win for Jesus. We want to have a big ministry. We want to do this, that, and the other thing. And this is where the sin begins. And they think you're undercutting the team if you undercut those people who are going after it. But he says, for you to understand that there are people out there that are going to disappoint us time and again who spoke sincerely, as far as they can tell, as sincerely as they're capable of, of Jesus at church, Bible study, or whatever. And can't keep their mouth from uttering curses on the people they ought not utter curses on. So he's going to answer the question in verse 13. What the nature of this unrighteous world is by understanding what this righteous world is. Who 
is wise and understanding among you. Remember, there are no chapter-verse distinctions in the, in the books of the Bible. This is coming right out of you, you know, that not many of you become teachers. These sort of things happen. The, the, the tongue will lead you to great evil. It's a restless evil, a deadly poison. So you have a question in mind, who should I listen to? Well, the question is, who is wise and understanding? By his good life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Okay? That's the brief description. You should be able to see someone whose walk with the Lord is evident quietly without trotting itself out there. It's not a matter of you get to change the rules because we live in a capitalist age and we want to sell everything including our Lord. It's a good life meekly not a pious life with trumpets and good advertising. Now, I was in advertising for 25 years, longer. I really enjoy it. I enjoy selling widgets to people who don't need widgets. Really expensive widgets for people who only needed a cheap widget. Because that's what advertising is about. It made America great. It doesn't make the church great. Because, he says, you want to know who's wise? Look at a life and look at the meekness that brought it about. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, now this is what was interesting. This stood out to me this morning. I was sitting in the library going, hold it. If you are rotten inside, he says, don't talk about it. Do not boast and be false to the truth. He says, basically, if you're bad inside, don't shut up. Please don't shut up. Because remember, part of the sin is not yet done. You're awful inside, in some sort of way. You speak it. It becomes real. And it causes you to circle the drain of hell. It makes worse happen in your life and in others' lives. And the thing is, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. We know he means this in a real solid way because a couple verses later, he says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. This seems to be at least one thing really big in Christians' lives in their hearts that selfish ambition and bitter jealousy are the mindsets of the heart that begin to infect our words and can infect our words in very split ways. In other words, I can be religious and worldly at the same time. It's the one thing we've noticed over years of working in Christian literature and the like that Christians don't object to. You know, if you had, um, you know, some famous Christian writer you're trying to sell her books, you know, um, Corey Ten Boom or something in a bikini. You say, what? Bikini? What do you mean? Well, that's how you sell things, right? Makita girls on the poster. I, I like this skill saw. 
Oh, she's pretty. I want that skill saw. I'll buy that car. We understand the pride of life. We understand beauty. We understand... Uh, um, um, what's the other one? Flesh. But we don't often think that the pride of life is as entrenched in the body of Christ as it is. We would never allow we would never allow an erotic poster to be put out in front advertising a, an event with a sultry looking female doing a come hither on the poster. Well, why not? It gets attention. Well, how about one that's just absolutely beautiful? Oh, yeah, but we could possibly do that. We could possibly do that. But we advertise ourselves with selfish ambition all the time. Every book has the author's picture on the back as big as me. I'm in real life. It's always, you know, looking at you, really kind of godly but knowing. Selfish ambition, bitter jealousy. Both of those are the same quantity, just one you won and one you lost. Bitter jealousy is when it didn't work out for you, and selfish ambition is when it is working out for you. The advancement of your cause. He says, if these exist, this is not where wisdom occurs. Wisdom occurs in producing a good life in the man that has it. Meekly. Selfish ambition is not meek. Bitter jealousy is not meek. As a matter of fact, they start to shoot their mouth off. They boast and are false to the truth. I was talking to my dad the other day about, he wrote this book recently on Christian unity. I believe there have been copies in the back, which you're free to take if you want. Um, we were, I was talking to him about this thought I was having, about how much the Christian order of things has produced the disunity, all the while claiming, remember this double speak, we can be all about selfish ambition, our group winning, while it sounds like we're about unity. You know, it's just waiting for everybody to get a clue and agree with heaven that we'd have Christian unity. That's all I want. I just humbly want that. You agreeing. Just not. Just not with me. It's the beginning. We know that men fight with other men about ideas because they're ambitious. Men fight with other men because they're jealous. And they'll do it in the church over spiritual things. Because we all want to get ahead. You do know that the selfish ambition of the pride of life is the extension of my will. And my idea, you picking it up, I am so pleased when Drew and I were talking yesterday, because I was meditating like on many levels, because I 4D chess. I was talking to him, I was thinking about something else, and then onion rings sprang into it somehow. And... But Drew never gave in. He never did. Now, it's a hard thing he'd do. He's my financial advisor. And I commented at one point that I didn't, you know, like to beat my financial advisor in an argument about money. Well, he didn't ever admit that I had. 
And I was thankful for that. One, to maintain unity without extending my will. Because all that means is you're trying to unify the church in you. If we have a Reformed family that has started to come to church here, the Rosers, and they like coming here because they enjoy the fellowship with you who are not Reformed. I'd like more Reformed people here. Because it's not like, oh, man, i got to convince them. No desire to. None. Zip. Not my job. It's such a blessing to be in a situation where your ambitions aren't driving the work of God. Or your failures are causing your sense of failure about the work of God. Or you're jealous of other ministries. Because the wisdom, verse 15, this wisdom is not such as comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. So when you see this in the body of Christ, amongst the teachers especially, but watch yourself as well, because you could be a foot soldier for some cause. Have a belief, but you're supposed to have it like a wise man, a wise woman. Not a selfish ambition sort of person, or a bitter jealousy sort of person. Because when they exist, every disorder and vile practice will occur. Verse 16. This is where the bad things happen. Where guys run off at the Puerto Rican pool boy. Where ministries collapse because of conceit and domineering and money stuff and all the rest. Vile practices occur because people were up to something. They were gaining something for them, or they resented not having it. Jesus Christ's wisdom. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is... Now I want you to always go back to this verse. This is where a verse I always go to when somebody says, well, what should pastors or ministries be like? Well, this is the description of the wisdom of the ministry that you're supposed to be looking for. You guys are going to go out in life. Dane's leaving town in a week or so. These are the things you should look for in the body of Christ. You don't want someone who's making a name for himself. It's selfish ambition. You don't want somebody who is the, you know, what are they called, separatist away from everything they, they knew they lost and so they sell the losing side of the equation. There is a bitter jealousy. They always never speak well of another believer. You want from above, remember devilish, earthly, unspiritual. That's what ambition makes of the church. Wisdom from above, this is how you recognize it. Is pure. First, pure. Now, it doesn't tell you what it means by that. But it's meaning something to you by that. Start there. It's pure. It's not tainted. has integrity. Then peaceable. What? 
Because all this crisis in the body of Christ, the disunity, the fighting, the contention, everything else, then peaceable? That's how you tell. They're not just speaking of unity. They're peaceable. They don't curse their enemies who are made in the image of God. Gentle, in case you were wondering. That means you're not going to make your you know, little Nancy boy. It doesn't mean that you're uh, fragile. You being gentle is you not being fragile. You being gentle means that you're strong enough to know how to hold something fragile. When your mother says, gently, when you're petting the kitten for the first time. <laughs> you know how to handle your strength on something fragile. Because you know there are a lot of fragile people in the church. A lot of hurt. Oh, they may be wrong. They may be bitter. They may be in sin. But they're still busted. And you've got to know how to be gentle with them. Oh, this is a good one. I always like this one. Open to reason. Because most pastors, at least in my encounters, know that that's what everybody else should be. They just weren't open to reason. I gave them my arguments, whatever my views are. I gave them my arguments, they just weren't open to reason. If they were open to reason, they would understand what I'm saying is entirely true. We're supposed to be open to reason. I always like C.S. Lewis's uh, definition of belief in his essay, On Obstinacy of Belief, where he said, uh, belief is the psychological exclusion of doubt, but not the logical exclusion of dispute. Just because you believe it totally doesn't mean you can't understand how arguments can be raised against it. And we act as if we're not open to reason. We're not open to if somebody showed you. Do you have little tricks that you use? Oh, it's a paradox, my son. Eh, that means you're wrong. And probably a communist. We have little ways of excusing ourselves. We want to even have our inability to answer a question sound more pious for not knowing. Well, some things, my son, are inscrutable. Because scrutiny things is what we'd like to do. And when they're inscrutable, full of, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, without uncertainty and insincerity. Those things coupled together with me a good number of years ago when I had to look at open to reason and free from uncertainty. How do I do this? Psychological exclusion of doubt but not the logical conclusion of dispute. Are you able to have someone say, you're wrong, and happily engage them in the dispute about your reason and be open to what they have to say, understand what they have to say, and be certain about what you're saying. But that's how we learn something, but the, that's, this is the wisdom from above. It's not going to be an easy dance because we're not going to be able to fall back on human passion to do this. Because human passions are the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. 
This is wisdom from above. Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy are all pride of life. You didn't get your way, so you are angry in the argument. You just got proved wrong in front of the ladies. I did that. I was a very bad person one time. Just once. I was in an argument about some theological point. This was, I don't know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. There was a couple young ladies at the house listening to the argument. And uh, I was having a good time, probably a little too full of myself. And I finally said, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, stop, stop the argument. Ladies, who's winning? You are, Mr. Wilson. Oh, this was me. It was just me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't listen to that woman. He's from California. Um, what do we, we know, we know how rewarding it is. Even if you're not planning on being unfaithful to your wife or anything like that, to have the reward of female attention or male attention. You couple that in the church, you couple that in other circumstances. But the pride of life, you know, we're, we're aware of those things, but pride of life. Suddenly, success. What if, so? I put the sermons up on SoundCloud, you probably don't know that, but they're up there, and about five people listen to them during the week around the country, and sometimes in the Ukraine, by the hundreds. <laughs> um, what, if, what if it happened one day to someone very important, maybe the President of the United States, who needs the Lord, listened to a sermon, convicted of his sins, repented, and commented in the next State of the Union that he was led to Christ by a small church in North Idaho called All Souls Christian, to which he had never gone, but heard the sermon. Boom, everybody's here. People hanging from the, what's that called? A balcony. Had to put extra people back here. Had to start a choir just to siphon some people off. Two services. We really need to be with it. It's not bad to have that happen. It's not bad to have it happen. It's bad to be motivated by that happening. It's bad to be motivated by that not happening, which is bitter jealousy. We need to be motivated by the wisdom of God. We know that the other things are natural to us. And our natural being, what causes... Wars. I had this section put in because it follows on it. It says, you're making peace. The harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes wars and what causes fightings among you? What is the basic problem in humanity? Is we do not know how to speak to one another and fights break out. So you desire and do not have, so you kill. And you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, comma, in bold, to spend it on your passions. 
We have to recognize that even in the church, and even when we have people that talk about God and piety a lot, if they're still motivated by their passions, flesh, beauty, pride of life, says do not love those things. If they love those things, they want to get where they're going, they want to argue what they're arguing, they want to drive the church where they're driving it. It's a port called disorder. I think I had the place here on the notes. Port disorder around the Cape, a whole lot of sin. It's, that's where we're going. It's going to create sin in this world. Sin in this church. Sin in your life. To spend it on your passions, stop and say, if I'm not getting along with my roommate, if I'm not getting along with my parents, if I'm not getting along with my spouse, I'm not getting along with other Christians in the church, I need to look at what I'm saying, whether I'm saying things out of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. But I need to collect winning in this life because that's how I, you know, some people just want the pleasure right now. They want your 20 bucks so they can buy the beer tonight for what they want to feel like tonight. That's just flesh. Some people, we're more adult, we're more mature. We have deferred enjoyments. We want to work our whole life and then collect the 20 bucks. We want to then find retirement and collect our passions. Are you moved by that? Unfaithful creatures, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You've heard that verse before. Did you know this is where it occurred? He's saying that the selfish ambition and the bitter jealousy, that kind of mindset, not the mindset that's pure and peaceable, open to reason, that's of God. But the other is moving you along to get what you want so that you can be happy by having your passions scratched makes you an unfaithful creature. It is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, usually, men who are friends of the world in this bad sense that we're talking about it, thunder from the pulpits of the land about people in their congregation who show too much friendship with the world. I don't know. Finally, I got one to cut his ponytail off. Finally. Actually, I was the one disappointed person because I was living vicariously through him. Some of you have gotten piercings. Some of you have dyed your hair. Colors that are not found anywhere in nature. Now, I, I just want to... This is a, I'm an artist. I'm not being a moralist here. I'm an artist. Telling the wife yesterday, the problem with this is this allows plain people to do startling things and it forces us to notice them. It used to be we didn't have to notice them. Okay, just saying. I object culturally. I object spiritually. But that's what usually happens, right? Bell bottoms, giving into the world. And you have bell bottoms? I had bell bottoms. I will wear them again if they're fashionable. At the same time, the worldly thing, the worldly thing that the pastor is doing, nobody spots. The pastor doesn't spot it, the church doesn't spot it. 
He's against worldliness, but worldliness is also the pride of life. You getting your way in your group and having your group succeed. You make yourself an enemy of God, not because you dyed your hair pink, because you put your picture really big on the book you wrote. And you started having somebody monitor your Facebook presence so that your Facebook presence would feed with the algorithms into everybody who cares category so that you could become a bestseller. So you could speak at the National Prayer Breakfast or whatever it is they do. Do you suppose it is in vain that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? I don't mean to give you any pause, but that verse doesn't occur anywhere in the Bible. So deal with it. But it's still true. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us. He's got something he wants to do with you, and it's not that. You were doing that. Your selfish ambition, your bitter jealousy, is what you were doing with you. But he gives more grace. Therefore it said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the answer. That's the nature of the pride of life, is humble yourself. Grace to the humble. Opposing the proud. How much, and this all goes back to the tongue. If I don't cure the heart of its natural devices, it's going to speak inside the church on Christian issues with selfish ambition. You've got to find a way to speak with the wisdom from above that's not the wisdom of this age, that's not the wisdom of, of earthly, devilish, and unspiritual. And it's a voice of humility. That's why it says the meekness of wisdom. The nice thing about wisdom, when it works in your life, you do not have to trumpet yourself because it's already working in your life. You know the famous proverb I always quote, the wise man is wise for himself and the fool he alone will bear. So, you can be confident when you're wise. You can be meek when you're wise because the only thing you're supposed to be succeeding at is you. You're taking you before the living God on the last day. You're not taking your ministry before the Lord on the last day. Well, it might show up at the judgment on the last day because God's going to judge you. You'll be more strictly judged for how you got to where you were in that ministry. As you minister to people, you say, the meekness of wisdom is proved in my good works. Do I have them? Do I show them to people quietly? Are they pure? Are they peaceful? Are they open to reason? Is it that kind of life? Verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. But look at those words. I, I typed them out on the side. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you men of double mind. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to dejection. That's a rough passage. Doesn't he know I'm kind of broken? Now he's going to be more broken after you fall down the stairs he pushed you down. 
Because this is where we need to go. This is, remember, we're dealing with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. We're dealing with people walking around the planet all puffed up about what they're doing, what they're thinking, how they're going to inform you about their life and their ideas. Not thinking about loving somebody. Listening to them. Understanding them. Oh yeah, believe me, I'm right in everything I affirm. I'll wait for you to ask about it. Are you able to let the world go? And if you're not, it's going to take this kind of submission where you submit, you resist the devil, you draw near to God, you cleanse yourself, that means you get right with God in confession of sin, you purify yourself, you're wretched, you can use the word awful, you're, oh, I'm just awful. Weeping, dejected, you humble yourself. And this is not just because we like to have, you know, Eeyores walking around the congregation. Well, I'm just not I'm just not I'm just such a failure. Remember, you're supposed to be full of what? Confidence without uncertainty or insincerity. You can have this good state, but you've got to get through this bowing the knee to God. Because that's where it says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You don't humble yourselves before the church. You're not trying to prove a little, you know, piety, shuck and jive, where you show how, you know, quiet and meek I am. You've got to show that to God. You believe in God? Before the Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Have you gotten on your knees and said, Lord, I am sorry I have been about me. About my success and that my complaints in life are because I haven't gotten what I wanted and I'm only going to be happy if I get what I want so I can spend it on my passions. And that's been coming subtly out of my mouth to my children, to my husband, to my wife, to my boss, to my employees, to my fellow believers at church. It's coloring everything I do and disorder in every vile practice is at the end of that little sailing trip because that was the rudder I was using. Which allows you to talk religion and talk cursing at the same time. If you humble yourself, you're opening yourself up to the wisdom that is from God. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Guide us. Instead of us being guided by our mouths, we'd ask that you'd lead us into your wisdom. Help us reverence it. Learn how to handle it. And let it speak the life in you through it. In your Son's name, Amen.